You're listening to the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Hey, how's it going? This is Alan Fansfeld speaking, and I'm here to give you the second episode of this season of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Two of two. Sounds like it should be special, and it kind of sort of is, because this week, we are presenting the first of our unique patented science explainy bits. Now, to be clear, it's the name that's new, not the science explaining, because I've done explainy stuff for science concepts before on this show, back in our super extended 42 episode long first season. I got quite a lot of feedback from listeners like yourself telling me how much you enjoyed my explanations, but I'll be honest, I'm dubious because I'm just this guy with a website and a podcast, so I'm not sure why you're trusting me to get these things right. I'm not a professional research astronomer. I don't even have a PhD. But you all seem to trust me anyway, and you have explicitly asked for more, so yeah, sure. Just promise me you're not going to use these segments as exam prep, and if you're planning to cite me in a paper, it's your own fault, right? Anyway, it is now the 16th of July, and there are just a few short days before the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Yes, it was real. No, I don't have material prepared for it. I mean, I really wish I did, because, you know, it's a big deal. It's one of the key achievements of the human race, those first steps out of the cradle, as it were. And it's a crying shame that we haven't been back since 1972. But it's just not a subject that I know much about. Almost everything I do know comes from websites, books and podcasts, all written by people who know a lot, a lot more than me. And the astronomy press is, without a doubt, going to be saturated with this stuff. I just don't know what I can add. So instead, I'll be audience for this particular event, munching my popcorn and following the live tweets along with you. But until then, you're here listening, I'm here speaking, so it's time to begin the science explaining bits with one of my favourite questions based on a chapter from a really old, dated cosmology textbook that I was given as a teenager called Origins of the Universe by Albert Hinkelbein. This book was written in 1972, before the discovery of dark energy, before anybody had come up with the idea of inflation. Neutron stars and black holes were still considered theoretical possibilities. Nobody really knew if they actually existed yet. This book was published while the Apollo program was still sending astronauts to the moon. And yet, the thing about science in general, and physics especially, is that the basic ideas never change. Nobody is ever going to suddenly discover that gravity isn't real, and the next Einstein isn't going to show that actually you can go faster than light after all. And the principles used in this book to explain the question are as true now as they were back then, even if we've since measured a few more decimal points. So... Before I waffle on any longer, let's start the science explainy bits. I have a special fondness for half-understood facts. You must know what I mean. Those, those things that everybody thinks they know all about because it was taught to them in school when they were little, but it turns out that they still only have that second-grade simplified understanding which isn't entirely accurate. I did an unscripted episode a while back where I talked about the tides... And that's a classic example. Everybody knows that tides are caused by the moon's gravity until he points out that there are two high tides per day, more or less, but the moon rises only once in that time. So this segment here with the science explaining bits will be all about stuff like that. Stuff that everybody thinks they know well 
until they have to try and explain it to their kids. And today, I want to look at planets. The current formal definition of a planet is that anything which orbits the Sun is more or less spherical, and that has cleared its orbits of any other competing objects. Well, that's a planet. This definition has got some... Well, it's got problems. But until the International Astronomical Union have another meeting about this, it's what we're stuck with. But why does a planet have to be round? If we were to find a world out in space that wasn't round, would we say that it's not a planet because, yeah, okay, it's cleared its orbit and it orbits the sun, but it's got a funny shape, and that's not good enough? Well, yes, but that's the wrong question to ask, because unlike the other two points of the definition, the shape of the object is an inevitable consequence of its size. Make anything big enough, and it will try its hardest to be round. So whenever you see very massive objects that aren't round, it's because there's an extra force at play. So why then? Why must a planet always be round? Well, it all comes down to a competition between the strength of a material and its weight. The bigger something gets, the more material you add to it, the heavier it gets, and the harder it has to be to support itself against its own weight. So, for an example of how this works, let's imagine you're at the beach and you're building sandcastles. And you're ambitious. We want to see just how tall you can make that castle. We're making sand towers. So you get your little bucket and spade and you fill the bucket with damp beach sand and you pack it down nice and tight and you flip the bucket over, lift it carefully and, hey, you've got a little sandcastle. The damp sand is strong enough to support itself. It holds its shape and you can then start carving out little windows and battlements and all that. But your castle is not very tall, so you fill up another bucket and you very, very carefully place it on top of the first castle. Now, I've done this as a child, and it's hard, and it doesn't always work, but if you've got the right sort of sand on the beach, and you, you're careful enough, you can make it work. A sandcastle on top of another sandcastle to make a little tower. But it's a lot more delicate than the first one, because the bottom castle now is to support double the weight. If you try and add a third castle to the top of that, the entire construction just collapses into a heap of wet sand. It's just too heavy. Okay. We rarely want that tower, though, so let's abandon the whole sand and buckets thing. That's for children, and we're getting serious. Let's try using granite. Granite is very popular these days for making kitchen countertops, but it's been popular for thousands of years as a building material because it's hard, it's strong, and it takes a beautiful polish. So, for our tower, imagine we have a supply of granite blocks. Each one is a cube, 10 centimeters across, weighing about 2.7 kilograms. That's a nice solid lump of stone, strong enough that you can pile them up really high before anything bad happens. How high, though? How many blocks can you pile up on top of each other before their combined weight is too much for the block at the bottom? Well, a 10 centimeter cube of granite can support a weight of roughly 125 tons without being crushed, which... Now, if I've done my math correctly, that's very roughly about the weight of 45,000 cubes. In other words, you can stack these granite cubes up to a height of about 4.5 kilometers, or to an altitude of 14,600 feet. That is the height of the famous Matterhorn in the Alps. Granite is pretty strong stuff, but we can use granite to make an even taller structure if we change the shape. Instead of a slab-sided block, we can make it lighter by changing it into a pyramid. Keep the base the same size, but let it get narrower and narrower as you go up until it forms a point at the top. 
This reduces the weight of the thing by two thirds. And so we can actually make it three times taller before the pressure on the base is enough to crush the rock and collapse the whole thing. In other words, the maximum possible theoretical height for a pyramid formed from granite is three times 4,500, that's 13,500 meters, which is about one and a half times the height of Mount Everest. Of course, this is all for something that's only 10 centimeters wide at its base. Couldn't we go higher if we just made the base wider? No, it doesn't work like that. You see, by making it wider, you're adding more granite and making <laughs> you're adding eight times as much material. A 10 centimeter cube, you see, has a volume of 1,000 cubic centimeters, but a 20 centimeter cube, that's 20 times 20 times 20, which is 8,000 cubic centimeters. And that means it's eight times heavier. Any extra strength you get by increasing the size, it's cancelled out by all the extra weight. It makes no difference at all how wide you make the base of the pyramid. The maximum height before the bottom gets crushed into gravel remains about 13,500 metres. Okay, well, that's all very interesting. So let's try to use this new information to change the shape of the Earth. Earth is, roughly speaking, a sphere. It's not a perfect sphere, obviously, because we've got mountains and valleys and the centrifugal force along the equator from its spin causes it to bulge outwards at that point, which leaves the poles slightly flattened. But let's say we decide to launch an ambitious engineering project to change the shape of the planet from a sphere to a cube. Cubes have eight corners. And if you don't believe me, go ahead and hit pause while you find some dice or a Rubik's Cube or something and count the corners yourself. Okay, you back? Right, so if you want to turn a ball into a cube, all you need to do is decide where to put the corners and then build up some nice squat pyramids at those points. Just keep on stacking material up higher and higher until eventually the corners meet. If that's not clear, have another look at your Rubik's Cube and pretend that it's had a spherical hole hollowed out from the inside and then imagine what the remaining bits would look like. Or to make it easier, uh, get a piece of paper and draw a square and then draw the biggest circle you can inside that square so that it touches all four sides. You'll see that the space left over between the circle and the square makes up four triangles with curved bottoms. The pyramids we want to build, they're just three-dimensional versions of those triangles. Now, if you're with us, it's fairly basic maths for somebody who did well in high school to work out how tall those pyramids would have to be to make the earth into a cube. And I'll save some time here. The answer is about 4.7 million meters, or 15.3 million feet. 4,700 kilometers. Easy. Except for one problem. We've already shown that the tallest possible structure that you can build from granite is only 13.5 kilometers. If we want to turn the earth into a cube, we have to build pyramids some 350 times higher than the tallest possible structure. We could try to find more exotic materials that are stronger and lighter than granites, and yeah, sure, they exist. But those materials are not made of magic, and although you can get a lot higher with them, you're never going to reach 4.7 million meters under Earth's gravity. And anyway, rocky planets aren't made from lightweight composites or aerogels or whatever other fancy materials you might be thinking of. They're made from rock, and that always means something pretty close to granite. So given these limits... Maybe we should give up on the idea of making a cubical planet. Maybe something a little less drastic. We've got a natural limit of 13.5 kilometers, so what can we do with that? Well, 
The Earth has an average diameter of about 12,700 kilometers. If we scale it down to 32 centimeters, the size of a nice big globe that you'd keep on your desk in a library, then the tallest possible stone structure that we can build, that 13.5 kilometer granite pyramid, would be only 0.4 millimeters high. That's thinner than the lead in a mechanical pencil. It's shorter than a flea. It's small enough that you wouldn't even see it, unless you looked very carefully at exactly the right spots. So I'm afraid we're stuck. But maybe, what if, instead of building up the earth into a cube, making it bigger, we shave material off, making it smaller? Because then, with a smaller planet, there's a lot less gravity, and so the same mass of granite would end up being a lot lighter. Right? Well, as it turns out, yes, this is correct. But it's still not enough to change the shape. If your planet is smaller, then you can indeed build much higher structures. And in fact, when we look at our solar system, the other rocky planets and large moons, which are all smaller than Earth, they do indeed have much taller mountains than Earth can manage. But even little Pluto, small enough that we don't even call it a planet anymore, is very definitely spherical in shape. Even if its imperfections, its plateaus and mountains and valleys are so much more extreme than ours on Earth, even the larger asteroids like Ceres and Vesta, only a few hundred kilometers across, can't avoid being crushed into rough spheroids under their own weight. It turns out that your world has to be pretty tiny before your average observer would say, it's shaped like a potato, instead of, oh, another round one. Well, you asked for it. It's too late to back out now. I'm going to be dedicating an entire episode every month to answering questions just like this. Please let me know what you thought, though, by sending emails to podcast at urban-astronomer.com or tweeting at uastronomer or just hunting down the show notes page at www.urban-astronomer.com and leaving a comment. I really hope you liked it because I've got a whole lot more prepared. If you're enjoying this new season so far, would you do me a favor and leave a review and a good rating somewhere? I'm told that some podcast apps like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts have this built in. But if you're listening to me through something that can't do that, I would really appreciate if you could find the time to head over to the websites for those services and leave reviews there. They allegedly use reviews and ratings to decide which shows to, to promote on their front pages. And, well, I could use the boost. I realize I'm asking a lot here. I can't remember the last time that I myself went to that much trouble to review a show, but what I do a lot of is recommending shows to friends or other podcast listeners. So would you do that for me? Just tell a friend to search for the Urban Astronomer podcast in whatever podcast app or directory they like. And if they can't find me there, just go to urban-astronomer.com and click one of the subscribe links in the sidebar. Okay, this is the bit where I thank the material contributors, people who have gotten directly involved in covering my production and hosting costs by contributing to my Patreon accounts. Catherine, Frank, Margot, and Peter, you are the best people in the world, and I appreciate every cent you've sent me. Thank you. Individually, my patrons don't give a huge amount of cash, but they don't need to. Over time, these small donations add up, and, well, it's very helpful. If you'd like to join them and sponsor the show for a few dollars per month, well, again, head on over to urban-astronomer.com and click the Patreon button. It's easy. Right, let me put my tin cup away now and tell you what's coming up next episode. 
A few weeks ago, I had a really fun conversation with Dr. Roz Skelton of the South African Astronomical Observatory, where we talked about galaxies. I don't want to give away too much just yet, but she was both really interesting to talk to and a little bit intimidating. I hope that didn't come out in the recording. Anyway, if you're a subscriber to the show, and if you're not, I'd really suggest you fix that just for the convenience. Um, If you're planning to wait for the episode to catch it as soon as it goes live, it'll appear in two weeks on the 30th of July, 2019. I hope to meet you there. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope you have clear skies. Goodbye. (music) Goodbye.